0: Great. Thanks. Um, let me just start here saying thank you. I, I originally had to cancel one of my, I was supposed to give a talk a couple of weeks ago, and I thank, thank everyone for being so flexible and for inviting me in the first place. Um, Sarah and Alex get lots of personal emails about why I couldn't make it. So thank you. Thank you for, for setting this up. Um, this is fairly early work in pro- progress. I'm sort of saying fairly early. It's early in terms of the amount of time I've spent on the project. Um, it's been hanging around a little longer than I'd, than I'd hope. Um, and it has to do mostly with the data and the data access. So I'll explain this a little later. Um, but I'm about to do an, another run in the in the field, or I should say in Washington, D.C., working with this data. Um, so I'm just about to start a second wave on this project. So I really hope you guys have some suggestions, uh, Criticisms. This is pretty early work in progress. Um, and also, I don't know what the normal ground rules are. Um, I'm used to presenting to economists who interrupt no matter what you say. Um, so go ahead and ask questions whenever you want. I'm, I'm more than happy to, to field them as we go along. Um, this project is, is an attempt to go beyond some of my existing work and beyond the work on foreign direct investment that's mostly focused on aggregate levels of foreign direct investment and country-level factors. So thinking about how a country's institutional environment affects the ability of firms to either manage operations or their choice of whether to enter a market or not. The problem is both, I think, theoretical and empirical. One, empirical, we're talking about firms, yet we're using data that's actually aggregating across firms. And also we're talking about political risk, or we're talking about political influence, yet we don't actually have the individual firms or the individual politicians. We're making this mistake of aggregating up and sort of, drawing inferences from what we see. But I think the next step is to really test, both build theory at the firm level, but also test this theory. So this is an attempt to, to move down to the level of the firm. Um, and it, hopefully this project is going to be part of a book project. So there's a lot of directions I might be going here. So, so please don't be frustrated if I say, well, I might do this, and I might do this, and I might do this. I'm going to try to present the research, that the paper that I've presented, uh, that I've sent to you. But at the end, I'm going to talk about avenues of future research, and this might give you an idea of of where this project is going. Um, Just a quick overview. I'm gonna talk a little bit about politics in multinational firms, looking at Uh, political risk in least developed countries, or you could even say middle-income countries, Um, and then to think about how this literature is completely disjoint from most of the literature on how firms influence politics in the United States. Maybe you might say that they should be disjoint. Uh, But there might be ways that firms influence politics that's quite common across countries, or that they have strategies that they adapt in different institutional environments, but maybe we should look hard at how firms actually try to manage politics. Um, and then third, I'm gonna t- look at a few very new studies that look at how firms try to manipulate their institutional environment, how they try to get institutional change either before they enter a market or after. My focus here is to think about firms, and I'm, I, I never can quite figure out what sort of title I should have in this project, but. It's, Maybe one of the best titles would have something to do with adaptation. And how firms not just change things or they decide whether to enter or exit a market, but they adapt to different markets. And they make choices on how to adapt based on political institutions. Um, and then I say here risk is endogenous, meaning two investors in the exact same country, in the exact same institutional environment, might be exposed to very different types of risk or have very different ways of influencing politics. And we want to think about how these firms' choices lead to more influence or more more risk. Um, On the empirics, I'm going to focus on firm-level data of the full universe of U.S. multinationals foreign direct investment. And this is firm-level data, meaning every U.S. parent company's investments abroad in a given year. Um, The problem with this data is it's confidential, and I have to do all this data work in in D.C., so I'll talk a little bit about how this makes both my empirics complicated, but it's also a Makes it difficult. There's huge barriers to entry and replication and some other issues that I just want to throw it on the table to be as transparent as possible. And then I'll talk about future, future research. Um, there's a, a literature, maybe I don't have to go through this in, in a lot of detail, um, political risk. And we, we can think of a number of different ways to think about what is political risk. Let's just think about contract risk, that an investor decides to invest in a country, and they have some contract with the government. This contract could be on the property rights, that you're going to get national treatment. You can use our court systems. It might be on an exchange rate. A lot of U.S. banks going into Argentina said, we don't actually believe the Argentinian government. There's really high inflation. We want all our contracts in dollars. And whether the government upholds these contracts or not. But we can also think of things like nationalizations and expropriations, Venezuela and Bolivia as two two pretty pretty striking recent examples. But any time a, a government makes a decision that reneges on a contract with a multinational, so I'm not talking about bad policy. Right? Governments might, Zimbabwe might have really high inflation rates that affect all firms. I'm trying to look at the types of activities that governments engage in that target either specific firms or specific industries. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about political risk. Well, there's a large literature in economics looking at foreign direct, foreign direct investment flows. And if you had a really naive model of, I have no idea about political risk, I don't know anything about political institutions, capital should flow from the rich countries in the world to the poor countries in the world. Because we can, we can look at a number of very simple models and say, that's where the returns to capital would be highest. Yet these models vastly overpredict the amount of foreign direct investment going between rich countries. Sarah was just pointing out, is this a problem when three-quarters of the investment is actually between rich countries and a very small percentage of the investment is in these developing countries? I think this is, this is a problem, or I should say it's a real opportunity for political science. This is the real empirical puzzle. Why is there so much investment across rich countries and so little developing countries? Lucas makes the point that it is political risk. National-level political risk really affects affects the hurdle rates, that it, the, t- the rate of return that a, a firm would want before they'd even decide to invest in Nigeria versus investing in Switzerland. Um, there's also uh, some really good work by Bruce Blanagan that says, actually, when we do empirical studies of, of FDI, we shouldn't pool o- OECD countries with non-OECD countries. That We actually think that the determinants are quite different. Again, the claim is it's political risk. There's some sort of hand-waving what that means, where it comes from. I don't know if God made the world, and she decided OECD is low risk and non-OECD is high risk. But the point is that there's a lot of work in economics that shows political risk has an enormous impact on these foreign direct investment flows. Then another literature that's not very closely related, but I think we can draw some real insights from, is how do firms in the United States influence politics? So there are risks. I was just telling an example in... St. Louis, there's a bit of a panic by Washington University because there was an attempt to ban stem cell research, um, and there was actually some discussion in the state legislature. And WashU lobbied to, to preempt the state legislature and actually put on the refer- put a, tried to advance a referendum that would actually make sure that Washington, uh, that make sure that Missouri mirrors the national level, the, the national legislation on stem cell research. So, so Missouri, as sort of a conservative state, now will just mirror the Congress. And the idea is that Washington University wanted to really protect the medical school and protect the biomedical investments that we're trying to attract. Well, there's, there's a big literature on how do firms m- get, how do firms get politicians to make either make policy changes or, or, or do things that are in their interest. And, and Salah at all, a number of papers, by Stephen and Salabere, have some really, really interesting work saying, you know what, everyone talks about campaign contributions and lobbying. You aggregate the numbers, it looks like so much money, it's just amazing. But when you actually think about it, it is a tiny percent of GDP. So I, I looked at the data. Um, in 2004, President Bush raised roughly, I think it was something like $180 million for his campaign. Walmart, in that one year, spent more, or roughly the same, in ca- campaign, I'm sorry, in charitable contributions. So all the money that President Bush raised was equal to just what Walmart spent on charitable contributions. Now, you could think that Walmart is just so charitable that they're just giving so much money. Or you could think, you know what? When given the choice of either giving money to politicians through campaign contributions, they actually think that charitable contributions, usually targeted in, in districts where they have operations, is more effective. So in, in Salhaber's point is that actually there is way too... There's too little money in American politics for it to really be persuasive that this is how firms get influence. The average PAC contribution from a corporation is $1,400. One-third of the Fortune 500 companies don't give any contributions. There's some responses to this saying, well, just because the dollar amount isn't nearly as high, okay, fair enough, the media likes to talk about the aggregate number and they don't compare it to the size of the U.S. economy. But a, a number of papers, mostly by Gordon, uh, Sandy Gordon and Kathy Hafer, have looked at different ways that ca- campaign contributions can be influential, even when it's small amounts of contributions. And their focus is mostly on regulation. So power plants attempting to minimize the amount of regulators that show up actually use campaign contributions to signal the bureaucracy about their ability both to fight and that they're going to actually provide contributions to politicians, sort of like a retainer that we're constantly giving money to this important politician, and if you do something bad to us in terms of regulation, that they will attempt to step in. They actually have another paper that's really really interesting that looks at CEOs and when CEOs provide campaign contributions. And what they do is they calculate how are CEOs making money. One is you could just have a salary. You just get a million dollars per year. Another is you get stock options. And they actually, most CEOs have some complicated um, mix of salary and and incentives. Well, they find that CEOs with more incentives, and they call it compensation elasticity, the CEOs that are the ones that are going to gain the most from a rise in the stock price, these are the ones who are providing campaign contributions. And the same individual, if they leave that company, or they leave and have a different compensation package, all of a sudden they're salaried, they stop giving campaign contributions. So Gordon, Hafer, and Linda are claiming that we have some evidence that the individual CEOs that have the most to gain from manipulating politics are exactly the ones who are providing campaign contributions. Um, I was talking to Verdier a little earlier saying, I actually don't buy this at all. am not saying they're research. I don't buy this idea that firms are actually managing and manipulating politics just through lobbying and campaign contributions. Part of it is the number is so small, but part of it is we can pull out very important firms, St. Louis, Anheuser-Busch. It doesn't matter how much money they provide in campaign contributions. They employ enough workers that that provides a lot of political capital for them. Washington University, we do some lobbying, but for the most part, we're, we're sort of this, this gem of St. Louis that when we push for something, a lot of local politicians will, will jump on board quite quickly. What I'm gonna talk about here is how firms can actually try to manage these operations, to think of ways where they can get more politicians on board or to have their operations structured in ways that politicians naturally are their allies. Um, another set of literature looks at the revolving door corruption, personal investments of of politicians. In this great paper in the American Economic Review, someone actually did the data collection and found politicians and what firms they're connected to. So you go to Singapore and look at the ruling family and see what firms they actually own, or what firms that they have members of their immediate family that are member uh, on the board or major stakeholders. And there's some argument that politicians might naturally have the incentive to protect firms because they actually have an ownership stake. Maybe this doesn't sound like it relates to IPE. I was just doing an interview uh, with Anheuser-Busch. Anheuser-Busch purposely gave a small stake of ownership in one of their Chinese production facilities. They gave 3%, pretty small, but they gave it to the township enterprise in the small rural area of, of China. And their argument was, this is exactly how we make sure the politicians take care of us, that we're aligning our incentives with their incentives. And this is sort of in the vein of what I'm I'm doing. The idea here is that there are a lot of ways that politicians might have the interests of, of corporations um, sort of they want the corporations to do well because there are their own personal inv- investments or some other mechanisms through which they benefit. Um, finally, and I think this is probably the most related, there's some people who've done work on the geographic location of firms and how geographic location affects the way politicians respond to firm demands. Um, Bush and Reinhardt mostly focus on the geographic distribution of firms, thinking about how collective action problems can be solved by more concentrated industries and more concentrated firms. Um, Fiona McGilvery has a different argument, and I think this fits more clearly with, with what I'm talking about. Fiona looks at trade protection, and her argument is that in different electoral systems, you'd have very different constituencies, very different very different districts that politicians would respond to. In the United States, a majoritarian system with weak party discipline, you actually see every politician sort of getting as much pork as possible. This pork includes trade protection for their industries. In the U.S., it's the most powerful districts, the safe seats, the long-running incumbents who have very strong positions on committees that are ones that are most likely to bring back trade protection. If you move to Canada or the U.K., with much stronger party discipline, you see the parties attempting to target marginal districts. So the firms that happen by nature are in safe districts in the U.S., you get goodies, and if you're in a marginal district in Canada or the U.K., you get goodies. And again, my argument is, if firms know this, they might think hard about where they locate or how they can align their investments with the type of electoral system. Is that too long too too long of an intro here? Um, let's... Let's move very quickly here. There are a couple new papers that are worth thinking about. And and again, this is more in the vein of IPE. Eddie Molesky's got a really interesting paper that looks at foreign direct investment in Vietnam. And in Vietnam, although it's an authoritarian regime, there's actually a lot of complex negotiation between the provinces and the central government. And what Eddie Molesky finds is that there are a lot of provinces that actually break central government rules. And a lot of the rules they break are sort of pro-market rules. So Pepsi got in trouble because there was a ban on English language advertising. So they set up all their little soda fountains in Vietnam and then the government said, you actually have to take those all down. You have to have it only in Vietnamese. Um, what Molesky finds is that some provinces actually made exceptions for firms or they even went even farther than that and said, we're gonna privatize, we're gonna attempt to privatize industry, we're gonna allow firms to invest in this area which technically you're not allowed to invest in, agriculture he finds that the, the provinces that attract investment are the ones that are allowed by the central government to make policy changes. So he calls it fence-breaking. So it's when you're bringing in enough goodies into your district, the central government will turn a blind eye to your activities. And his argument is that this is really an interesting dynamic where we see institutional change, not necessarily the firms are asking for it, but the firms are giving politicians the ability to go and make market reforms. Vid um, Henisch has a number of papers and looks at something slightly different, um, looking at not national-level institutions, but when governments carve out special incentives for firms or for industries. Um, so there are a lot of governments that have special export processing zones um, or different zones in the country that have special exemptions on labor legislation. Um, recently, Volkswagen got a special exemption in Germany on allowing a 37-hour work week, and now moving up to a 40-hour work week. So that when firms can negotiate and get very specific, specialized exceptions to the institutional environment. Okay, so I'm, I'm getting to what I'm doing. That was a long, lit review here. Um, I wouldn't be so bold to call it theory. Um, I call it theoretical instu- intuitions, because this is really a work in progress. But the, the argument that I'm trying to make is that, again, I'm focusing on political risk, but it it meshes with this other literature that I focused on, that the way investors invest in a country and set up operations affects the risk environment. Of course, national and level institutions matter, but there's an interaction between these institutions and the firm's operations. Um, just to give one example, the oil industry gets in trouble constantly across countries. They're the ones who are always first to be nationalized. We can maybe make an argument, well, it's, it's just because it's such an important industry. It could be because oil prices go up, and that's because there's a backlash. But there's something else that's slightly different about the oil industry, and that's the oil industry shows up in a developing country, hires tons of construction workers, builds the oil production facility, and then fires 95% of them three years later. These are capital-intensive operations. So the only goody that you're giving the central government is, well, I gave some capital, and I'm pumping some oil. You're not providing any other localized spillovers. So one argument that you could make is that the industries, not just the oil industry, but other industries that have these same characteristics could be the ones that are exposed to the most risk. In certain countries like Norway, if there's strong enough political institutions, then then you won't be expropriated. But in other countries, we don't have this protection that you're the ones who are going to be expropriated. There might be other firms that that actually have a lot more flexibility. Textile manufacturers. Um, I did some interviews with Intel, and Intel, shockingly, as a very high-tech company, actually varies their production techniques quite dramatically across countries. Again, in Costa Rica, the Costa Rican government actually has, in their constitution, a level of education spending. What, what Intel did, the first thing they did when they moved into Costa Rica, built a huge production facility that provided all this capital to the local universities. And they actually tried to develop local expertise for their engineering. Again, it's in their own interest. Right? They actually want these engineers. They're not just throwing money at institutions as, a, as charitable contributions, but they're going to hire high-skilled workers from Costa Rica and help pay for some of this public good of, of providing this education. In Vietnam, they had a very different strategy. They've showed up. they built a production facility now, but their first thing in Vietnam was to send out representatives into those small rural areas, teach people how to use the Internet, teach people how to use computers, but also build up a local production Of computers. Teach people how to use Intel chips to make computers. And Intel again is now the darling of of Vietnam. Very different strategy. Um, The most sinister example I have is I I had a chance to talk with one of the former CEOs of Monsanto. Um, And Monsanto said that they were producing uh, a chemical fertilizer that was one of their most probably their most lucrative product. They said the best thing for us to do is actually to make it in Iowa and ship it anywhere. Oh, yeah, there's transportation costs, but it was so cheap. Scale economies. Just build, produce it all in Iowa and ship it to the rest of the world. Well, it turns out in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of countries started demanding production in their country. If they only We're going to ban this fertilizer if you don't start producing it here. So they, they started building what was called a bucket and paddle operations. They really did all the work in Iowa and then just combined two chemicals in these countries. Well, then the next step was these, comp- these countries figured out And they they had production in 50, 60 countries. Figured out that there's no real value added here. You're just combining two things. It's not creating jobs. It's not doing anything major for the economy. So they said they wanted more advanced operations. And this is where it's sinister. Monsanto actually, the CEO, claims this is true. They actually got their engineers to figure out how they could start mixing chemicals together and make sure smoke came out. And the idea was that it looked like something more high-tech was going on. And he said it worked for about two years. We could fool enough countries into leaving this alone, and then eventually they had to start shifting more and more production to these countries. Uh, One interesting example is Monsanto recently built an R&D facility in Brazil, and they built it really far in northwest Brazil, an area that's probably not economically feasible for a research and development facility, but it was actually one of the areas the central government was targeting for more investment. After Monsanto made this investment, there were major changes in laws that affected genetically modified crops. And these changes, after Intel invested, the government didn't renege on these promises. Again, it was in the government's interest. They were doing some of the R&D on these genetically modified soybeans. Um, so again, I, I hate to give these Monsanto sinister examples, but this is just an illustration of how firms can change their, their operations in different environments. Alex, how am I doing with time here? Um, I don't know, 10 more minutes. Ten more? Um, so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to look at here is thinking about how firms would adapt to different political environments. In this paper, it's pretty simple. It's sort of a follow-up of some of my other work. It's thinking about democratic institutions and how firms change their operations based on the level of democracy. Um, the next set of, of work I want to do is thinking about private versus public goods. When a firm invests uh, in a locale, they can make lots of choices of how to build this production. And they also have lots of choices, whether they're gonna import goods from abroad or they're gonna le- use local suppliers. If you're gonna use a local supplier, which local supplier are you gonna use? And you can imagine that firms could help minimize their political risk by buying from the right supplier or providing public goods in the districts that are important for politicians. I'll talk maybe later um, in in some more detail about this. But right now I'm focusing on just democratic institutions. So this, One of my friends said, aren't you getting a little tired about this democracy versus authoritarian regimes? Um, I am getting a little tired with it, so I'm gonna go through this pretty quickly. But the idea is that we could think about very different risk environments in democracy versus authoritarian regimes. Um, One of the reasons could be number of veto players. Uh, Another is the information, the amount of information that's available in a democratic regime versus authoritarian regime. And then finally, I make some arguments in my book about audience costs and the idea that politicians could be punished for reneging on contracts with multinationals. In some cases, it's very popular. Go after the oil industry, go after the mining industry. Uh, But it still doesn't mean you can't be replaced later when you have a tarnished reputation. Um, Some of the empirics, um, although there are a few people who dispute the leads to more FDI flows, Um, Kwan Lee has a paper that says, well, after you control for property rights protections, democracies attract less FDI flows. But a few people have found also that democratic regimes attract higher levels of FDI. Um, I did some recent work looking at from the political risk insurance industry. You can buy risk insurance for a civil conflict in the Congo. You can buy risk insurance that if the Argentinian government renegs on your contract in terms of currency, and you can get nationalization coverage like most of the mining companies in Bolivia did. And I got some data on the pricing. And sure enough, the democratic regimes have lower prices for this political risk insurance. Uh, than authoritarian regimes. And then finally, Quan Lee has done some work finding their actual cases of expropriations and nationalizations are lower in democratic regimes than authoritarian regimes. So the point is, just think of this as a proxy for political risk, and we, could, we can talk about the details later. Um, the hypotheses that I, that I forward in this paper are, one, that firms might try to minimize their risk expo- exposure in high-risk environments. So that doesn't mean that they're not investing in high-risk regimes. It's not that firms are completely avoiding that they might be providing much smaller operations, either as a mechanism of testing the water, or you could think about just managing a portfolio. And they just want to have a small portfolio in the really high-risk environments. And the other is that they might try to invest in more liquid operations. So textile manufacturers actually have a pretty good deal. You just show up somewhere, you have lots of workers, a bunch of machinery, things go south, you pack up the machinery and move to another country. And if they take the machinery, it's not that expensive. It's your brand name as Nike that really matters. There are other firms that it's actually very high fixed cost, the auto industry, the natural gas and oil industry, and then there's a lot of manufacturing firms that they can actually make choices on this, on how fixed of investment they want and what types of production facilities they want to produce. And then the third hypothesis is that firms might want to try to structure their operations that align with the preferences of domestic politicians. And I focus just on partisanship, on the assumption that leftist governments are more likely to represent labor, and right governments are more likely to represent capital. So when an investor invests in a leftist government, you make sure there are more spillovers for labor relative than when you're in a right government. Um, And I'll explain this in in some detail in a little bit. Okay, the data. I'm happy Irfan's not here. I I always tell the joke that I have to go and do this data analysis of confidential firm-level data, and you basically have to be in your underwear in a a secure room with a bunch of economists. Irfan liked the joke more than you did. Um, the point is that you have data available from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is sort of a semi-independent arm of the Department of Commerce. All the FDI data that you get about the U.S. sending capital abroad and all the data about UC aggregates, last quarter the U.S. got this much investment. It all comes from this data. And this data is generated by providing a, a firm-level survey. Um, and I should be careful how I say survey. It's actually every firm parent firm in the U.S., the 3,000 major firms in the U.S. that have operations abroad, have to fill out this survey. And they have to send this survey to all their foreign affiliates. So a foreign affiliate is, you know, GM has a production facility in Mexico. That production facility has to fill out this form. And these forms have detailed information on finances, taxes paid, um, the amount of capital invested, the amount of workers, the amount of wages, total wage bill, all sort of the firm-level details that you could imagine that a that get aggregated up in the balance sheets, SEC statements, sort of all these. So, so I've, that's why I'm careful to say survey. It's no, it's no questions about how they feel about the investment environment. It's what do their operations look like. Um, the full universe of this is roughly 20,000 investments in a given time. So 3,000 US parent firms have 20,000 observations around the world, 20,000 investments around the world. This survey is done every five years. So it's not, and it's because it's so onerous. There's so many questions. They only ask it every five years. But the data includes all these details about operations. And there's some confidentiality requirements. Basically, I can't tell you about any individual cases. The IRS is not allowed to look at this data. This data is only used for academic purposes, mostly at the BEA to aggregate up. Um, They allow some people to be unpaid, unfortunately, unpaid employees of the BEA and go there and run the analysis in-house. And then you can bring out output, but you're quite limited in what else you can bring out. I can't even bring minimums and maximums. And you can't allow anyone to reverse generate anything. So I I could talk about an industry and say, the auto industry in France, blah, blah, blah. But if I say the oil industry in Nigeria, and you know it's got to be either Shell or Exxon, if it's less than three firms in that country, I can't say anything about it. But again, you can still run the cross-level, sorry, the the cross-national analysis. Yeah? What's
1: the penalty
0: for lying on the survey? Uh, It's pretty big, and it's a big financial penalty. And the way they try to They wouldn't give me the exact details of how big the penalty is. Um, They said it was very stiff monetary penalties based on what you lied on. And the way they check lying is they start aggregating up the foreign affiliates to the parent level and then compare it to the SEC statements and the IRS statements. Um, And the claim is that this should mitigate problems of data quality. So we were talking about transfer pricing. What if firms are trying to make profits show up in one country and, and losses in another country? You can observe this in the data. Right, whereas in, in a lot of the SEC documents, you can only see the aggregate level of taxes paid. Um, I don't know if that, does that answer your question? So at, at least the hope is that this should be the highest quality data that we can imagine. Um, but again, the, the problem is that it's very difficult for people to replicate. Um, you have to be a U.S. citizen to get access. There's a long queue. Um, and I can't pull out any specific details of any single firm. Um, can you yeah? you go with the- um, you can go in with a laptop. You just can't put any. You can't put anything on your laptop. you, so can, you, type you can type on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can. You know, and they don't really check. I could burn it all on a CD and leave. I just would be in prison um, pretty quickly. Uh, the claim is that it's sort of like I, I wouldn't say it's an honor code. They check the computers to see what's been downloaded um, and if anything's taken off. And then anything I present. So I had to get clearance to present this paper. Anything I present, I have to go through them, and they they axed a few things um, that I had. The claim is that they're not going to ax any of the substantive results. It's just they have clear criteria of what you can present and what you can't present. You right now. Yeah, exactly. I have to be very careful. then. Um, but the, uh, I, I think the point, the point is that it should be the highest quality data and gives us a lot of lot of possibility to, to really sort out the individual firm level factors. I was telling you, a few people at lunch today, I, I took a quick check at the taxes paid by these by these firms, and there's a a lot of firms that aren't paying any taxes at all, 30 to 40% of the observations. They're claiming they're making losses. Um, And the correlation between the national level tax rate and the actual tax rate paid by the firms is close to zero. Um, It's not quite zero, but it's close to zero, and you see huge variance. So Germany has a set corporate tax rate and you see huge variance across firms. Some of it is because of financial incentives. Some of it could be because of some evasion. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but again, we could sort out what explains these differences across, across firms. Um, my simple, here's just a quick idea of what the data looks like. This is in 1999. Um, there are roughly 20, 23,000 investments, 24,000 investments. The majority of the investments are concentrated in the OECD, roughly three-quarters. Um, the 2004 data is just online. The government is a little back, back in time here. Um, the 2004 data is just, just up now. And I imagine there should be a higher distribution in developing countries, mostly driven by China, but actually some more investments by the United States and Southeast Asia. But it still should be heavily weighted towards the OECD. Um, my empirical analysis is, is quite simple. Um, and part of the reason I have to do simple analysis, I have to run everything in DC, and these are big data sets. Um, so I'm actually looking for, I was asking Luke Kiel some questions about how to make some of these analyses run more quickly. Um, so I'm just going to give you something very simple today, and we can talk about what would be the more appropriate empirical strategy. I'm using very simple OLS regressions with robust standard errors, with the dependent variable being the firm's operations. What is the size of the investment? How many people are employed? What are the total sales? What is, how liquid is the investment? So plant, property, and equipment divided by total assets as my dependent variable. And then I'm using a battery of control variables on the right hand side. So parent level and industry level control variables. Three digit SIC code and all the parent firms. So IBM gets a dummy, Dell gets a dummy. And the idea is to control for these parent level effects that different firms, even with the exact same industry, might have very different technologies. And we don't want to be capturing these differences. What we want to do is sort out, as cleanly as possible, how is it that political institutions are making this this effect? Um, and the key dependent variable here is the level of democracy, the standard polity, polity measure. Um, I've, I've tested the robustness of this of using a very simple random intercept multilevel model. model. Um, the most appropriate model, and Luke and I were talking about this, would be actually a cross-classified multi-level model where you think about a firm that's nested in a, a parent firm and it's nested in a country. So that there's two things pulling at you, right? You have Dell, and you have their technology, and these are the possibilities of your operations. But you also have an institutional environment that you're trying to respond to. And again, this might explain why some industries get in more trouble than others. The oil industry, if your parent firm is so constraining, there's only one technology that we use for oil extraction versus textiles where there's tons of t- different technologies. Um, but again, that these models take more than a day to converge in some in some cases, and I usually only go to, go to D.C. for two days at a time, so, so hopefully in the future I can maybe sort out some better ways to do this. Um, real simple empirical results. I don't know if this is too small. Um, the point is that I find that the log of assets, the size of the investments, are quite large in de- democratic regimes versus authoritarian regimes. Now, I've done some controlling for whether... I've dropped the OECD. Is this just because the OECD countries are different and they're bigger investments? This works in the non-OECD. And I've ran a couple selection models as well using uh, sort of a standard selection technique um, where using the treatment effects and the Heckman models um, where you select based on level of GDP and natural resource endowments as a determinant of democracy. What you find is, I don't know if this shows up well, um, essentially you find the investments in democratic regimes holding all other things constant, including the parent firms in the industry of the investment the side of the investment is roughly 30% larger. So some of the work that I've done in Kwan Lee have looked at the level of FDI flowing into democracies versus authoritarian regimes. Even if a democracy attracts more dollars of investment, it might mean that they're getting the exact same number of investors. It's just that these firms are managing their risk by making smaller investments, and that might have in, important public policy ramifications. That's not that they're not getting enough investment, it might be they're getting suboptimal sizes of investment, that these investments are quite inefficient compared to other investments. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, you, you know, so I, I originally started using, Adam Shavorsky's got a lot of work on these selection models, and his standard is GDP per capita and the sum of transitions from authoritarian rule, um, although that seems endogenous to me. What I used was GDP per capita and the existence of natural resource endowments. Um, so you can either do an oil dummy or oil production a log of oil production, a log of oil and mineral production. it does a pretty good job of, of predicting the level of democracy again, the results didn 't change a, a whole lot, but again, I think I still think the multi level modeling approach should be more. I'm aggregating, I'm giving you results aggregated across all industries and parent firms, and and the best would be to show the different industries and how these different industries respond to the level of political risk. Um, The other quick thing I did was looking at, just in OECD countries, looking at how partisanship affected the types of investment that firms made. Um, the reason why I do the OECD is, I, I just honestly, it's a data issue. I don't really trust what a left government means in non-OECD countries versus right government. You look at some of these cross-national data sets, and you see Castro and Carter both coded as left. I worry we might be confusing something. Um, so I just wanted to be a little more careful and think about a better way to code parties, thinking about pro-investment parties versus anti-investment. So I just focused on the OECD and look at, in these OECD countries, how, does it, how do these firms' operations vary? And what you hear is see here is a left, left executive dummy, um, but you can also use a measure of the number of, of cabinet seats for the left, and also using the, the composition of the parliament that's, that's had by the leftist party. And you find roughly the same results. Essentially, leftists have no impact at all on firms' operations except for one variable, and it's the amount of employment. And it works both in the number of employees that you have, but also the total salary bill that you pay. Um, there's questions here, what's causing what? Is it that these countries have higher levels uh, of labor regulations which are forcing you to hire more workers? Um, although a lot of people make the opposite, right? So Germany has such strong labor laws, you actually see smaller investments in the number of workers, right? Because you're worried you can't fire them. But it's, it's still plausible that the firms are requiring you, the countries are requiring you to hire more workers. Um, or it could be that firms are manipulating their political environment. Now when a leftist is in power, you do good, Um, and make sure that you hire enough workers and that'll help protect you. Um, And the one sort of interesting example in the U.S. is Honda just built a production facility in Indiana, I think over Ohio. I think you guys came in second. Um, And they actually got a really large incentive package. And their incentive package went up when they announced more workers. Um, They went from, I think, 1,000 workers to 1,200 workers. And that got them a, a few million dollars more of incentives. Again, so this sort of fits... It's a story that fits, but I'm showing that there's some correlation in the data as well. Okay, so this is, this is some very rough empirical analysis. Um, the preliminary results are democratic institutions are so associated with more, Just we'll just say bigger operations. And in countries with left executives, we actually observe firms employing more workers. So what's, what's the next stage? Like I said, this is the, the rough first cut. What I'd like to do is think harder about political institutions. And one of the focuses that I want to the direction I want to move is thinking about individual politicians. And when politicians, who are the key actors that you're trying to affect? Is it a party in a PR closed list system or is it an individual in a majoritarian system like the United States? And we could observe very different strategies in these different environments. In the United States, you make sure spillovers concentrate in that important electoral district. In another country, open list sorry, closed-list PR, you wanna make sure that the party somehow benefits. So you could observe national-level goods versus uh, sort of more district-centered goods. Um, The other thing we could think about is, again, with this partisanship, um, if if we really do think right parties are are representing local capital, you could observe more investments in in production facilities, and these production facilities attempt to buy more from local capital. So rather, importing from abroad you purchase from local capital providing more spillovers. Um, So that's that's sort of on the theory side. I like to think harder about linking the investors to the exact political actors that are important. Um, And then on the empirical analysis, I keep talking about multi-level modeling, um, there's a lot we can do here to think hard about should we really be aggregating or is this dummy variable approach really, it helps control but it doesn't help us understand these differences across industries. The other is to to build a more dynamic model and thinking about the countries that have institutional change. When you move from a leftist government to a rightist government, do you see changing patterns of employment? Um, This is actually a lot harder than you think because it turns out a lot of the firms drop out in these five-year samples. Um, It's really difficult to track the firms and usually it's not that they completely give up their operations, but there's always mergers and acquisitions. There's slight changes in ownership patterns. So it's a lot harder to do, but at least it's possible. Um, and the other is that if, if I'm right here, if I'm right that they're adapting to these different political environments, we should see the firms that can adapt do better than the firms that can not adapt. And we can actually calculate their productivity, their cost of capital. We can calculate this at the firm level and see whether the firms that are adapting are, are more profitable. And then the final is that I, I've been talking a little bit to some firms, possibly doing a case study or two. Um, I've talked to Anheuser-Busch, which is actually a they're in St. Louis, um, so that makes it easy. Um, the other nice thing is that they actually try to be active in almost every market in the world. They want to sell beer to everyone. But they're very strategic on when they actually decide to build an operation. And their first, their first selection criteria is, we want to see the total net profits in that environment. Mexico had huge profits, and that's when they decided to invest. And in other countries with large profit margins actually were skipped over because of the level of political risk. But as I gave an example before, they manage risk in some of these markets as well. And they manage the risk in China by giving some ownership stake. They attempted originally also to buy from local beverage manufacturers. They wanted to buy the cans. And it turned out the quality was too low. And they said, we can't sacrifice that. We know it's going to cause problems, but we're going we're to import it from abroad. And now as the quality is increasing, they're starting to buy more and more from local suppliers. Um, so the idea here is that we could do much more detailed work doing some case studies of specific firms. Um, to focus on how how politics affects these these operations. Again, hopefully this isn't about just economics. It's the big picture here. It's the big picture of how firms influence politics. And it might be this ability to adapt, to adapt in ways that help provide your investment, having the same sort of politicians have preferences for your investment to do well. Um, so on, on that no, note, I'll, I'll let go. Hopefully I didn't go over too much. No, that was great. Thanks. We
2: started uh, Our discussion today is standing
3: Do you
0: want me to sit? Stay up there.
3: thought so you you highlighted three
0: Yeah, yeah no I think that I think that's a great point, and it's it 's more of that again, I keep using I always make fun of one of my colleagues for saying endogeneity for everything, um, but there is some aspect that 's endogenous right so you 're choosing to invest in in a part of the country, and that 's why it 's low cost, but that still doesn 't necessarily so your question is the motivation are they going just for the low cost location? Um, the example I gave of Monsanto in Brazil clearly looks like it's not the case. Especially if you can, and again, this is maybe why the parent firm is important to look at. What does their strategy look like in different environments? But I think that, I think that's a fair point. I, I would ideally I would like to have some more data. I, I talked to some people about doing a set of match cases um, and thinking about within a country and thinking about what part of a country would be best for their investment. Um, so, so land-intensive operations, they might try to invest outside of that. No, no, I, I have to think about that. That's a very good point.
1: Yeah, your, when you're dealing with uh, uh, the table, you're only dealing with less uh, developed countries. Taking out the
0: OACD countries. I have to think about which, which one I present. I believe this is yeah the non-OECD in this in this table. So, so, you, so they're definitely taken out, you believe. No, no, sorry. It, I have multiple tables in the paper, and I'm trying to remember which one I, I presented here. This one should be, I, I can look at the end. Uh, the end is 38, this should include, this one I think does include the OECD in this. Um, but in the in the paper, I have it with the OECD dropped as well. The results are should be bigger than
1: this, because the OECD countries are mostly on the That's right.
0: Yeah, I, it makes sense. You, you know, what's, what's interesting, I, th- I think, is doing some interviews and now doing some more detailed data work. I mean, you could think about a, a, a polity that actually has an unstable government. You shift from government to government that still have stable policies, right? And, and that's part of, it. at least the interviews with the investors are now breaking down some of the polity data with the political risk insurance. It looks like constraints on the executive are what's driving a lot of this. Um, so, political systems with constrained executives are the ones that have the lowest risk premiums. So, you know, you still could have changes of executive to executive, but as long as there are checks on, on what the executive can do. And so,
1: you know, Before this era, you think, for example, Nicaragua would be really in mean, the Somoza era for you know, the last 30, 40 years. It uh, would be a pretty good place to invest because of that. I mean, assuming you got the right deal, you trust the government more or less to keep going.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's I guess what's. Some of the time horizons of these investors are quite long. Um, so I was talking to Elkan, the aluminum manufacturer, and I said, What's your time horizon? And they said, We don't even think like that. We're going to be there forever. But if you're asking if you're going to really push us, it's 60 years. Um, so, so if you're thinking about a regime that's stable today, uh, you actually ask these investors about Saudi Arabia. Um, and there's some real concern. Tactically, it's stable, but is it going to be stable within the next? Five or ten years. Part of it's security issues, but also is the worry about stability of policy. So, so I think that you know, I, I think it makes sense that you like a stable, stable government. But even a lot of these authoritarian regimes, even if they're currently stable, the question is projected in the future if they're still going to be stable. Um, so, Singapore is one of the few really stellar examples if you see policy stability um, in, in an authoritarian regime. There are a few others, but yeah, Singapore. Yeah, and they've actually replicated a lot of things in democratic regimes. So they allow a process of lobbying that looks a lot like the process of lobbying. They've changed the information environment. They're very bad at releasing information, except for investment information. Um, so that in some ways, Singapore has tried to get some of the advantages of, of democratic regimes. The one thing they don't have are these these constraints on the. I mean, I, I think that's plausible. I guess I'd have to think harder about how to separate empirically these two, the stability of government versus... I think there's a good deal of That's right. It's a stock. So right.
4: it's a product that we store with Timmy, right? So if there were expropriation
0: Yeah, I think those are great, great points. Uh, The first part is uh, state strategy. I thought about this. This actually kept me up one night thinking, boy, it's actually might be a good thing to be a really authoritarian regime because you can force the, and make sure your preferences are, I want technology transfer. And having a little bit of political risk, you make sure you get technology transfer. Um, So I've thought a little bit about this. What is the optimal strategy by the state? Um, And I think, again, it's complicated because if if we break down the state, we think about an authoritarian regime with, Really centralized individual leader, the individual leader that can manipulate these rules also has the ability to to change the rules in the future, right? So, so there might be some optimal level of of risk that actually allows both investment and allows governments to control that investment. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think it's a good point. I don't know what to do about it or, or where to go with it, but I think that's exactly thinking about this. Sarah, did you have a follow up on that? Or oh, sorry, let me just answer real quick. Sorry, you had the. What, is this? what are the conferences where you... finger right? Um, the, the other, uh, on the data side, I, I do think there is a bit of a... I mean, there is a selection bias problem. There's no question about that. The problem is, I mean, a lot of people here have read the FDI literature. I mean, what's driving these foreign investments is imperfect markets, right? The reason why you get Japanese auto production in the 80s in the U.S. because they're jumping tariffs. The reason why you get some high-tech investment in China is actually a, trying to control piracy. Right, so you, you have lots of mechanisms. So that's why I'm worried about there is selection bias, but controlling for that selection, this cross-national sample is complicated, and that's why I actually want to go to the, either individual firms or industries where, I, where I'm confident I can set up a selection equation. So I could set up a selection equation for the oil industry, and that only includes the countries that actually have oil or the mining industry, only the countries that have these type of minerals. Um, but if other ones, the reason why Anheuser-Busch, I had thought of Coca-Cola, but they're actually trying to enter every market. So the selection, there isn't a selection bias, whereas the auto industry is looking for a very specific type of country, and then within that set of countries. But I, I, think, I, I think it's a good point. Um, but in some sense, I'm trying to move away from these cross-national studies um, and move at the firm level, and all we can do is look at the observations of individuals individual firms. Sorry, Sarah, you had, yeah. oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, I was thinking about that comparing Singapore versus um, Central African Republic and, and thinking about the types of investments and not even just the structure of the economy. Okay, that'll, that'll affect the type of investment we can control for that. Um, I think that is a, that is a great, great point. I thought a little bit uh, about this, how to think hard about, I mean, I would like to link individual political incentives in an authoritarian regime. What is the individual incentive? And I thought one way to do this is to think hard about some of the multi-tiered authoritarian regimes where you actually have strong uh, provincial actors and what the bargain is between the central government and the provincial actors and what types of investments they, they want. But I, I, think it's, I think it's a great point. And I was thinking hard about that variance. I mean, the variance is, is quite high. Um, and it's not, just, it's not just that there's smaller observations in this. It's actually looking at the, the descriptive statistics. You see massive variation, some driven by oil industry in developing countries. But even, but even that, even within manufacturing, that you see massive differences um, in manufacturing, production, just at this, yeah.
5: Thank mm-hmm. you. I'll turn it,
0: Well, lots of good good questions, there. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I mean, maybe going backwards, I mean, this left, I think it is a good point to think about are they really going to fire a whole bunch of workers or hire a bunch of new workers? But if you think of these operations as really dynamic and they're making choices constantly about employment levels. And I think, and especially over a five-year time period, um, thinking about hiring of new workers or whether you're going to, have an expansion and what this expansion is going to look like. Is it going to be more capital intensive or labor intensive? Or in some cases, I was trying to find if there's data on whether you're bringing in managers from abroad or you're actually hiring local managers. Again, that you have a real choice over. And and again, you you could have the exact same production facility, and yet you have foreign managers or local managers. Um, Ideally, I would like to model this dynamically. Um, And I think that maybe this would get over some of the problems that do we actually see changes in strategy across countries? Because there is a there is a worry that possibly perennial leftist governments there's always left government in power. They provide higher quality labor, and that's why you're hiring more labor. I mean, it's it's a more productive input under a leftist government, and and I think that only could be done through some more dynamic, dynamic test. Um, I do like this idea though. Uh, the question about the information asymmetries and these different choices uh, investors are making, um, and risk hedging strategies. And one thing I'm trying to move in this paper is to think more broadly, not just about risk, but think about influence. Um, There's one project we're just getting off the ground, thinking about bilateral investment treaties. Um, And one sort of curious thing about bilateral investment treaties, they don't really solve a lot of the problems of expropriation. they make. They provide some benefits to investors. The U.S. government will sign a bilateral investment treaty with almost any government in the world. You don't have to sign them with rich countries. You only sign them with, with developing countries. Um, but who actually pushes for it? And you quite often see the U.S. investors that are already on the ground that are the big firms that are lobbying for it. Um, and one idea is, let's not just talk about risk, but let's talk about institutional change that will benefit these investors. And do we see different patterns? And the idea, again, is to think about what types of firms would be influential in different countries. Um, so in countries where there are lots of firms that are concentrated in marginal districts, and marginal districts are privileged in this electoral system, do we see the, the bits passed? But there's also a lot of variation with these bits, how many exceptions there are, how long it took to pass, etc. cetera. Um, the last thing, and I, I never I can't help fielding these questions about Chavez and Morales. Um, Chavez is being fought pretty hard in the, in the legislature. Um, and Chavez, well, so, so first of all, Morales is, I think, actually a perfect example of checks on the executive. If he had to go through Congress in more detail on these specific, uh, if, he, if, if he couldn't do this by decree or push for policies that allow for decree, then you might not observe these expropriations. Chavez, the real dirty secret is that it's not that bad to be an investor in Venezuela if you get expropriated, because he cuts you a pretty big check. Um, This isn't, I mean, it just tells you how savvy of a politician Chavez is, right? You expropriate, you show off that you're really good for the people, and in the end, the investors aren't nearly as upset as they are at Bolivia. Um, So so again, I mean, and again, the example of Chavez would be, again, okay, democratically elected, but it's checks on executives. Um, The other problem is, again, with these, with these investors, the mining companies get in lots of trouble. And part of the reason they get in trouble is because they pollute the water, they do terrible things for the environment, they're terrible work conditions. And a lot of these mining companies have tried to provide other public goods, free healthcare, they've tried more education, and they can't provide enough to actually stop people from expropriating. It's because that these operations are so harmful. So again, and I, I think this would actually fit again the story that there isn't any technology that they, that they could actually use that would still be profitable to be mining in Bolivia and get politicians in your back pocket where the manufacturing companies can do it. Um, So I don't know if that exactly answers the, the question. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a great question. I feel like I'm punting here that no, I haven't um, worked on it. Um, but I think it actually is really important. There's a lot of literature about, well, what, what happened? You actually see big changes in power distributions in the Middle East when the Russians were willing to help invest in the oil company or help build oil production when you didn't have to negotiate only with the U.S. and European oil companies. And there's some claims today with the, with the Chinese and Indian investors being more active. All of a sudden, countries have a lot more political power. Uh, relative to firms, and there's some a few very good case studies in India saying when there are actually more um, computer production companies, that all of a sudden the, the power asymmetry shifts from from the companies to the, to the to the country. So I think it's a it's a great point. Um, I just would have to think really hard. Uh, this feels complicated as as is, but I think it's I think it could be very really important. Yeah, you know, or I guess the other way too is to think about the governments and which governments have assets that firms really want. That's differentiated: oil, mining, um, big market Chinese government um, versus other firms that are Central American country that's trying to get a textile production facility that looks the same as 50 other countries. Um, and that might be another way. And that might be a way to make it more manageable. Thinking about what types of, of firms have very little political power over a specific industry. But no, I think it's a good point. I just really haven't, haven't done any of it here.
2: I just think that's a better way to conceptualize is it. It's not that firms can change the level of political risk. Or they can just uh, make themselves less vulnerable
0: to it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that
6: buys you
0: anything to think it that, that way. But. No, I'm, I mean, that's interesting. I, I mean, I guess I think of it as, as this interactive. I mean, I guess there are some institutional environments. Switzerland is really low risk, and, and it doesn't matter what type of investment you have, you have these protections. And in other environments, yeah, there are risks, and you can do things to hedge hedge against these risks. Maybe conceptually that would, you know, I, I guess what I'd like to push towards is an interaction between these country-level institutions that have an overall risk component um, thinking about the security of property rights and then individual firms and how they, the, the thing I'm worried about is saying, calling it hedging is because they might be doing things other than just minimizing the risks, right? You can actually, it's not just risks they want that the infrastructure producers sometimes want the government to increased spending on electricity provision. So the aluminum manufacturers always push for this. In Costa Rica, Intel is pushing real hard. Can you get better phone service? Um, that's not a political risk, but, but how they situate themselves in the country has an impact about how effective they are. So I think that's maybe, that's it. I, I really want to think about influence and when they can influence influence policy. I, I don't know if that's supposed to, sounds like a separate concept, but I sort of think about it as one is the same. When, you're, when the politicians wanna take care of you, they're gonna manage the risks, help manage the risks for you, but they're also gonna push for policies that will help you and, and in turn help, help them.
2: So how much does the national level really tell us? And it could, be, could there be a way to capture what the local level of politicians
0: want? The of politicians? Yeah. No, I think that's I think it's one of my colleagues, Brian Crisp, keeps pushing me, collect some roll call data from these countries and tell me. And, and again, if you could link, the complication is um, doing from the data side, I have this list of 20,000 observations of investments. I know what country they're in. And I could sit in DC and figure out what exact city they're in. There might be ways to merge this, but I would need to know where the actual investment is to test some of these theories. Um, does that make sense? Well, so you I need could to take know. A, you take a of yeah.
2: 100.
0: I mean, there's nothing to no. short of uh, driving yourself completely insane. Yeah. But I think. Th- under- right, right. Economists. It's not a pretty sight. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I, think it's, I think it's fair. And this is part of what we tried to think about with these bilateral investment treaties. Again, this idea we're thinking about if we can figure out where firms are located in different countries and then think about the incentives of local politicians. If, if they're really personal vote seeking incentives and there are, are uh, investments located in these, where these pivotal actors are, are they going to push for bits or in, in other systems where there aren't these personal vote seeking incentives, what types of investors would they respond to? Yeah, and some people have, maybe Irfan, I actually don't think it was Irfan, but someone had mentioned it as well some places like India where you actually get lots of variation uh, within a single country and you might be able to make claims about different political parties in, in different, different uh, parts of India having very different incentives and do the firms tailor their operations. So I, I, think, I think that would be a great, great direction to go. I'm gonna probably pick your brain on what exactly, what exactly to do on this. Um, but I think that, that that would be one of the, the next steps. Yeah, that's fair. You you know, I guess the good news here is that the 1999 stock... Now, this is complicated because it is the stock, right? So the artifacts of the past are still reflected in the stock. But we could also even look at the new investments from 1994 to 1999 uh, and look at if these new investments in Slovakia and the Czech Republic look different, again, from from the new investments in other countries that are, are authoritarian. I mean, it, I'm just giving an empirical strategy. This this could be done. And the new new data, the 2004 data that's coming online, this should be quite easy to do, um, to look again. And again, the, the stock, I mean, there's a lot of change in stock over time. So to look at the new investments would be at least one-third of the sample. And I think that's a good point. Like, let's, let's look at the post-Cold War period and see if the new investments in that period still conform to this. And there's some good data on some recent data. I, I don't know how good it is, but it's recent data on restrictions on foreign direct investment, restrictions on incoming FDI, because some countries like India have lots of restrictions on different types of FDI. The U.S. has restrictions on different types of inward FDI, and that could really affect the... used to have a lot of more right? So that's they right.
1: they were equally
0: democratic but at one time. It was huge That's right. Before. But, you, but I, you know, uh, I think it's possible to control for this... Uh, at the very least. Or again, we could focus on sectors that have historically been open and look within these sectors. Um, So mining and airlines um, and oil quite often ebb and flow, whether they're open or closed. Retail is closed in most countries. Manufacturing is quite open um, in in most countries. And we could look just at manufacturing FDI. Um, And I I did this just really rough. I'm still not sure if manufacturing, but the the pattern of just manufacturing FDI fit this exact pattern. Again, there might be enough variation in there that there's certain types of chemical industries that are really restricted. But but at least it made me feel good that the manufacturing, this isn't driven by the service sector FDI or other types of FDI that have a lot more restrictions.
2: Great, well,
0: Daniel, thanks a lot for your comments. Nate, thanks for the Great. Trip down I-70. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>